Hi, everyone. Welcome back to season two of the Activation Project, where we activate your mind, activate your tribe, and activate the world. This season is going to be really exciting with lots of changes happening in people's lives because we're going to focus on giving people a platform to come on and uncover their past, to free them from shame so that they can rewrite their future. And this first episode is going to be a banger. So we're going to have my co-host, Christina's mother, coming on. And she's going to give her story. I want to give everybody a disclaimer. This is probably a podcast that you're going to want to listen to away from any children. It's not suitable for most public settings. We're going to be talking about a lot of heavy things. So it's definitely R-rated. So just to give all of our new guests just a little recap of who we are. My name is Olivia Eden. I am one of the founders of the Activation Project. And I've been a coach for quite a long time. And now I work in psychedelic assistive therapy, which is part of activating your mind. We help people to really go through the process of self-realization, to come to a place of full understanding of themselves so that they can accept themselves and love themselves. And this podcast is one of the ways that we share our stories and other people's stories who are going through the activation process. And then this is my co-host, Christina. Would you like to give them the rundown of who you are? Yes, my name is Christina Murata, and I am a trainer of NLP and also a master coach in NLP, timeline therapy, hypnosis, and also a certified completion process practitioner. And I help people break through things that are holding them back. And this episode, or these episodes that are coming up for the Activation Project here are near and dear to my heart. I get to hear the story of my biological mother and a little bit about her mother to uncover a lot of generational trauma that was put onto me. And then you get to hear the story of how that happens. And then we're going to go into my story and it's going to be something completely and totally beautiful. And Olivia here helps draw the lines between the trauma and the different things repeating because we've known each other for almost 10 years now. And it's like she said, it's R-rated, so not safe for work. And I'm excited to share myself with you guys and really grow and experience something I haven't, which is true, honest healing. Yes, there's a couple of exciting things, very different eye-opening things about this podcast. One is that Christina was separated from her mother at a very early age. So she was a toddler. And even still, you'll see the correlations between her biological mother's trauma and the trauma that Christina experienced, even though she was raised away from her. So that's something that's quite eye-opening and revealing. And then the other part of it is, you know, yeah, I've known Christina for a long time. And it was just so incredible to see all of the parallels and similarities between them. And even more fascinating because Christina hasn't heard the story before. So she's going to hear 95% of these details for the first time on air. So it's definitely not something you want to miss. It's an incredible episode. We're so thankful for Carol Ann for coming on. Also for Christina's bravery, but we really hope you guys enjoy it. And we would love your feedback. So please email us and, and let us know how you like it. Like share, subscribe, all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. We love you guys. Enjoy. Enjoy.
Okay, everyone. So we are here with the lovely Carol Ann, Miss Christina Murata's mother. How are you today, beautiful? I'm absolutely fantastic. How are you, ladies? <laughs> really good. Thank you so much for being here and for being willing to open up and share your story to uncover some things that you might be holding shame around and just to free yourself. And I know it's going to be a really, really special experience for both Christina and you because there's a lot of details that even Christina herself doesn't know. So a lot of healing, a lot of mending, a lot of bonding that's going to happen today. I'm excited about it because I wanted to do that with my mom. And the exact same way of her not showing emotion has left a lot of unanswered questions. I agree that this is going to be a great opportunity to share some of the things, you know, and answer the questions. I know I can't answer all of them tonight, but at least it'll be a start. Yeah. Is your mom still with us? No, she passed away on November 23rd on a Monday at 3.37 p.m. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was from colon cancer and then cardiac arrest. So that's that. She's now gone. She's up with Brittany or with Brittany. She's with my mom, maybe. Yep. We're learning things together. Yes, Brittany is my little sister. Oh, okay. That uh, committed suicide in 2010. So the way that we wanted to start this is that we kind of wanted to know what you knew about, I call her mama, about Mama Reba and what you knew about her growing up and kind of start there. What I know about her history she left home probably about 15 or 16 years old her mother married this man i don't think it was her dad i'm still trying to figure that part out and he was very very abusive he didn't allow her to go to school i think past maybe fifth grade or sixth grade maybe we'll just say eighth grade she didn't pass through eighth grade so she had to work and I couldn't even imagine what was that. She was born in 43. So 43, 50, like in the 60s. What do you, you know, what was work like and what was life like back in the 60s? So she ended up leaving and moving to Delano, California. And that's where she never left. She moved there and she would never leave. She worked in the grapes all of her life. And she loved to go to the card room and party. Party like a rock star, you know, whatever party was back then. And when I was, I think, three years old, and I remember it, I remember it like when you were born. I remember it. Remember everything. I know I was in Pampers, and there was this guy that my mom was dating. Obviously, it was my mom's pimp from what I've heard. And he was Aryan Nation, you know, mean guy. And I happened to be cute little Asian baby. Well, my mom was dating him when he went into prison. Well, when he came out, there I was. Obviously, I wasn't his baby. I remember he threw me across the room and I landed on the couch. Well, you know, rooms back there weren't very big. And I remember it. And I laughed. How old were you? Because I thought he was playing with me. He wasn't playing with me. And then I remember, you know, as a little baby that I would see my mom always with black eyes or I, you know, walk to the bed and she'd be asleep. 
you know, and she'd be hungover or, well, now I didn't know she was hungover. You know, you're a baby. We just, there's mom. And I would, you know, like two and three years old, babies could climb and I would get the chair, how I did it. I don't know, but I would climb up onto the counter and I'd sit there with a bowl of cereal or not a bowl, but get in there and I, you know, I'd feed myself and stuff. And I remember Papa Pardo would always come around. Well, I don't know to this day who my father is. I just know that Pancho Pardo was an angel sent from heaven to take care of me. And yeah, he would always come around and, you know, see my mom, take us to eat. And, you know, I'm just a little kid. And then one day in the middle of the night, I don't know what had happened or anything, but I remember my dad, you know, that's all I know him as my dad came and he picked me up and I was only like three years old. and. It was super dark, super late, and I, you know, God knows what time it was. And he brought me all the way back to the coast, you know, to Guadalupe. And I stayed there with him. I'd wake up in the mornings and he'd clean me up and change my diaper and put me in the car. And I'd go to the fields and I would sleep in the car while he, they were working. And then all of a sudden I'd pop up and then all the Filipinos knew that I was in the car. And they'd, you know, do their oi, oi, or whatever they're saying in their Filipino language. And I would get out of the car. A little, a little kid, I, how do you know to get out of the car? I'd get out of the car and then I would run, you know, through the fields. And then I would sit on the box right behind my dad and he'd staple. Then I'd, he'd go to the next one and then I'd sit and then we'd have lunch, you know, and then I'd go home. Was he like a guy that your mom was dating at the time? My mom dated a lot of guys. Well, she was a prostitute, but my dad had taken a fancy to her and he just loved her to no end. You know, she could come in the middle of the night, not talk to her for months on end, you know, like I call her during the summertime and then, you know, we chat, you know, we get a bunch of coins and go to the telephone booth at the gas station. And then, you know, he dialed a number and I'd sit there and I get to put the money in. And that was just the biggest thing in my life was to put the coins in there and talk to my mom. And I'd always ask her, mom, can you come over here and live with us? And I would ask her all the time and she never did. And every time she did come to visit, she was either drunk on pills and stuff like that. And I was really small and I don't know what happened, but the police showed up at my dad's house and they took her away. And I was the one who had to flush her stuff. I was there in the bathroom with her when she was flushing her stuff down the toilet. And I had no idea what in the world she was doing. Zero. Oh, I was helping her. I was helping her. How old were you at that time? I think I was probably like four, maybe like three, four, I was really little. And then the police came in and took her away. And how long was she gone before you saw her again? Oh, I don't know. I would see my mom once a year in the summertime. I'd go every summer to her house or to her little shack, her little studio or wherever she was living and just go over there to Delano for like the summer break. And I did that every year. Until, you know, I got into my teens and I did it during my teens, but then I was always in trouble doing something, you know, like my mom drinking and partying and ditching. Well, she didn't ditch, but when you were staying with her during the summer, what was it like there with her? It was horrible. I'm glad that I was able to see her 
And I would see her every day, but I wouldn't sleep there. I would go to my cousin Teresa's house and stay there. The reason why was because my mom was a hoarder. She never cleaned. It was infested with cockroaches, dogs, and she never let the dogs out. So it was a lot of urine, a lot of feces. The odor was so horrific that I couldn't do it. That sounds really rough. It was very, very, very good. And as she got older, like pre-COVID in March, I went and I did not know the filth that my mom was living in. It must have been about 12 inches deep of just trash and about eight or 12 dogs. And so it was cockroach, rat infested, feces. It was like living in a trash can with dogs and mice. And her bed, uh, her bed, it was a blanket of just piss and urine. I don't know how she did it. So I was able to have two other people help and we cleaned out her whole entire place, repainted it, redid the flooring, re-got her new appliances, and I got rid, everything was gone. I got rid of everything. Wow, that must have felt really good. Yeah, because there was no way I could stay there. And there was no way when she started to get sick that she could come home. And all she wanted to do was to come home. And so we got the place. It took about a week or two. I walked in after they halfway cleaned it out. And I just broke down and cried. I just didn't know it was that bad. I couldn't take it. I walked out and got drunk. The way I dealt with it, I just walked out and got drunk and cried. So when you were living with her during the summers and you're having to be around that, did she have anyone else living with her? Or when did Baxter? Yeah, she did have somebody living with her. And it was always a different guy from the Philippines that was working in the fields and they took care of her. I don't know how they put up with it, but they did. And she always had a place to stay. How Baxter and Lucille got involved was when I went to Poncho, you know, Lucille, bitch. (laughs) Lucille came along and told Poncho that you can't have a kid in the fields. I was doing perfectly fine. You know, I mean, I was perfectly fine. There was nothing wrong with me being in the field. I mean, I slept and ate and just, you know, I didn't get in any trouble. And then he stepped in and said, well, she can come stay with us. Lucille and Baxter said that. And so Poncho caved in and said, okay. And then Lucille wanted $150 a month to pay for my room and board and my food. Well, back then in the early 70s, that's a lot of money, you know, like 70, 1970, 71, 72. I mean, $150, I think was a lot of money back then. And they put me in school and everything. And then I'll never forget the very first day I walked in that house. I walked in the hallway and I stood there and I didn't want to be there. And I cried and Lucille was just this mean, wretched old lady she was like six foot tall she had these eyes that were blue that were piercing and she was mean mean i'm telling you just horrifically mean she'd yell and scream and 
you're supposed to be seen and not heard. And she always would spank me because I fed the dog wrong or I didn't put the dish away the correct way. There was always something. You know, I did my schoolwork. I did everything. I was, I was doing dishes in kindergarten. Who makes their kid do dishes in kindergarten? So you know, right. She would punish you all the time. You would just all the time. away from your, what it sounds like, a pretty loving father figure and a dysfunctional mother and then just thrust into this household of strangers where there's no love and affection. Zero. The man, Baxter, every night, I did my homework, took a bath, and if there was enough time, watched some TV, and I was in bed at 7 o'clock every night, regardless of the time change, and it was broad daylight, you know, even during the time change, I went to bed 7 o'clock. And when I would be in the bathtub, Baxter would come in and then he'd make eyes and want to give me a bath and, you know, touch me inappropriately. And then it just got progressively worse until I was about maybe in fifth or sixth grade. Did you ever tell anyone? I think the very first person I told was Frank, your dad. And that's when I was like 18, 17. And how long did you stay with Baxter and Lucille? I started running away at kindergarten. Can you imagine? I plotted. I got out of the room because Lucille was a light sleeper. And I waited till she went to bed. And I had you know, a tiny little overnight bag. I put clothes in there. And I had my teddy bear tucked in the side. And I got out of the house. And I ran. Well, maybe walked. But I knew how to get to, to Papa Pardo's house. I got there. You didn't live too far? Well, as a little kid going, that was far. Right. But no, it wasn't far. But for a little kid, for a little, I don't know how you are in kindergarten. you like, what? Five. At five, I ran away. Yeah. Wow. And was yep. he, when you would show up at his doorstep, did he ask what was wrong or he didn't like, he couldn't tell that there was something wrong with you? He opened up the door and of course he let me in and the cops came, they got me and I'll never forget what they said. They brought me back and even Papa Pardo was there and you could tell Papa Pardo knew something was wrong, but I never said what went on. And all the police chief said, because Guadalupe's, you know, back then, I think it was probably like 5,000 people. It was a very small community. So the police chief, everybody knows where he lives and everyone's, you know, friends or, did you know, big gossip town. And so I ended up back at Lucille and Baxter's and we were standing in the front yard and the police chief goes, something must be wrong. Either she's getting molested or you need to spank her. You know what I mean? It was either one or the other. And I was too insecure or just didn't know what to say. Because Baxter said, Baxter told me, don't ever tell. And I could see the look on Papa Pardo's face that he knew something was wrong. And oh yeah, I got beat. I got beat. Didn't change the locks on the door though. Papa Pardo, was he an immigrant? A legal immigrant? He was, but then he got his citizenship. Okay. Probably he didn't want to ruffle any feathers or... Yeah, he came in through New York. I saw the document online where he came through Ellis Island through New York. Was he from Manila? No, he's from Bansur. I heard that's pretty crazy over there. And then he migrated all the way to L.A. And yeah, he committed second degree murder in the streets of L.A. during like the Zoot Suit era. You know, the Pachuco era story is he had a girlfriend and the girlfriend was walking down the street with another guy. 
So my dad walked straight up to him and shot him in the middle of the street. Wow. Did he go to jail? He went to prison. He went to San Quentin. For how long? For about 11 years. And it was President Reagan who pardoned him. And this is before born or after? Before. He got pardoned because something specific. Why? or just No. I don't know if they were handing him out or what, how or I don't know the story behind that. Just, for, just to recap really quick up till now, because we do the ACE, which kind of measures trauma. There's the 10 questions. Already we've counted prison on yeah, both she's, sides. She's, a nine. she's, she's a nine. So you've already done it with her at the nine. Yeah, she's, she's wow. a nine. Yeah, it sounds like you've been through some pretty major stuff. I know that about Papa Pardo. Well, my original birth name is Hogan. Hogan? I'm Carol Ann Hogan on my birth certificate. However, I have the document from when I was like four years. I don't know. I'll, I'll have to pull it out. But they changed my name from Hogan to Pardo. That's how I became Pardo. So for me, hearing a lot of this stuff for the very first time, I don't know whether to cry or if I wish I could fly you and hold you right now. And like, <laughs> there's so many similarities between stuff I didn't know about you and me that I didn't know. And um, it's allowing me to see you in a different light and to know that you went through these things and seeing the similarities, like even with Lucille, you know, Michelle. yes, the similarities there to see that is like, I, <laughs> it's mind-boggling to me to see the stuff between us and how it was passed and and I'm getting so much out of this and thank you so much for being so vulnerable and talking about it and even finding out about Papa Pardo I didn't know any of those things about him it's opening up a whole nother like my mind is just buzzing right now it's just thinking about all these things and what they mean and now that I know it what I can do for myself and future children knowing these things and by the way for the people who can't see this video and are listening carol ann is a striking gorgeous beautiful woman uh, she was miss filipina miss asia filipina <laughs> in 2013 right Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she is awesome. She's funny. I'm just, I want to honor you for everything that you've been through. Just up until fifth or sixth grade, which is where we're at from now. So like, all more to come. So, yeah, so what was happening right around then, fifth and sixth grade? Were you good in school? How were your grades? Oh, I was good in school. I had no choice to be good in school. I had no choice in the matter. I really liked math. hate English. I could do math. Oh my gosh, I'm the same thing here. Science, not a fan. History, grew it too. But <laughs> math, I could do math all day long. It <laughs> frustrates me, but I know that there's an end result. <laughs> That's what I love about math, is that there's always a result. You just have to follow the pattern or follow the equation. But yeah, I did well in school. I did well in PE. And I went to St. Mary's. I had no choice in that matter. If I would have stayed in Guadalupe, what happened when I went to kindergarten, I came home speaking Spanish. Well, duh, you live in a community that's all Mexican. Well, okay, predominantly Hispanic. And so I went to school and they're all talking Spanish. So I come back, you know, cool, talking Spanish. And yeah, I got slapped in the mouth and, you know, drop your drawers and got whipped. And yeah, now I'm like, okay, I guess that was the thing to do is to be the kid for coming home, speaking a second language, probably been multilingual by now. 
So when fifth, when fourth, fifth, and sixth grade rolled around, I get I was promiscuous and at Catholic school. You started having sex in that? No, no, not until uh, my freshman year. How old were you? 13, 14. Yeah, I lost it on my eighth grade summer. You know, I was in Catholic school. I mean, we were just having fun. You know, you have a boyfriend on the playground and, you know, it was just very innocent, but it was fun. I never got to play any sports because Lucille didn't want me to have any outside activities because then someone would have, you know, Baxter would have had to come pick me up and Baxter was a gambler and a molester. So, you know, and she was just evil. So they had pushed whatever I needed aside or whatever I wanted to do. You know, I couldn't have any friends. I couldn't talk on the phone. How long did the him molesting you go on? It's about fifth or sixth grade. Then you got too old, do you think, or what? Happened? I think I yeah, I think I got too old, and maybe I would just give a look, or you know, like it when when it would happen was when Lucille on Mondays would go to bingo, and I hated bingo, bingo night, Monday night, and it was also Monday night football, or it was baseball. So yeah, do those things still bother you today? No, if I'm in a crowd of people that are watching football, you know what I mean? And I'm running around with them. Oh, yeah, I can do football all day long and barbecue and have fun. And same thing with baseball. But to do it on my own? No, you know, I think that the molestation and all that has gone so far away and he's dead. You know what I mean? That it doesn't trigger me. But I do know if I'm drinking, I could go down that route real quick and think about it. But no. I guess it's created who I am today. You're extremely resilient. Yeah, that's what people say at work. When you got a boss that screams and yells, he's a hothead Italian. And I'm like, <laughs> I just walk out. Loving on resilience, you too. Wow. Yeah, amazing. So yeah. you started uh, discovering boys in Catholic school. What was it like growing up in a really religious setting like that? Oh, it was, oh no, it was all phony. We were supposed to go to church. They always drove me and I always went to church Monday through Friday. But when it came to Sunday and I wanted to go to church, I couldn't go. You know, the day that you're supposed to go was the day I wasn't allowed to go because Lucille didn't want it. She wanted me to be home. I had chores. I had to clean. I had to scrub walls. I had to vacuum. I had to do a lot of stuff. Kind of glad I had to do that, kind of, because it's kind of made me who I am today. Everything has to be nice and clean and neat and tidy. And oh my God, it's OCD, I guess, because it stems from that, maybe, you know, so I can have a control of something. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I. Well, what you can at the time did you want to go to sunday school oh yeah because then i could talk with friends and hang out with people yeah christina experienced the exact same thing huh yeah i wasn't allowed to go to church unless i made straight a's which i did and then she would tell me on wednesdays i used to go with my friend jenny lee dickinson to church and she'd be like well do you want to come have all you can eat pizza with the family or are you going to go to church with jenny and i was like i'm going to go to church with jenny <laughs> But I had to earn to be able to go. And I thought that was so weird. I'm like, there are kids. Like, I'm begging to go to church. And you're just... That's funny. How interesting. Yeah. So eighth grade, graduation rolls around. My mom shows up. I was so happy. Guess what mama did? Mama Reva. Good old mama Reva. We're all in eighth grade. 
And my mom helped me sneak in alcohol. <laughs> to the eighth grade graduation? Yes, at St. Mary's. So she came in as cool mom. Yeah. And, you know, with all of her jewelry and her hair done and her little fur coat and everything. And she was the one who dropped me off at the eighth grade graduation, walked me in. We hid the alcohol in the girls' bathroom in the trash can. And so we drank. And I don't even think I got drunk. Well, we got caught. How we got caught is we left the bottle in the trash can. So I got in trouble. I wasn't allowed to see my mom for a while, probably a whole year or whatever. And so my mom was called over your name in the book, bitch, all of some other words that I don't want to say by Lucille. And then, you know, from St. Mary's, normally you would go to St. Joe's, you know, because that's where everyone from St. Mary's goes. You go to St. Joe's and then from St. Joe's, you go off to college. Lucille decides we're going to put her in public school. Bad choice. <laughs> Bad, bad, bad. That's when, because everybody knew I was the Catholic girl, lived on Elm Street, and I was always, you know, I'd go to the grocery store with Baxter, go to the grocery, you know what I mean? I was always with my dad, or I was always with Lucille, and people saw me, but I never spoke, and then all of a sudden, I was dropped in a piranha tank. Yeah, I had to walk to the bus stop with a bunch of cholos standing there and Chola standing there and I'm just fresh had smoked my first joint eighth grade de-virginized and there I am the bus stop dressed really super cute you know and just there yeah it was all downhill from there I have a quick question so did Baxter and Lucille get legal guardianship of you who had actual like not to say who owned you but who had Legal guardianship, parental rights. Oh my God, that's a good question. No, I'm like, was it Papa Pardo? Was it your mom still? Was it Baxter? Was it Lucille? I think it was Lucille and Baxter. I don't even know if they went to court because I don't have any court papers. Honestly, I mean, she could have threatened to, you know, his citizenship, you know, if he was still a legal immigrant at the time, you know. Why did she want you so bad? Like, she just knew that you were inside the back of a van during when he was picking stuff. In the she wanted that $150 is my assumption. Oh, I see. Also, a woman like that seems like she wants to be seen as good. Oh, look at this girl. That we yeah. That we're, we're doing yeah. things. Looking at such an amazing woman. And yeah. what do you think her rationale for switching you to public school was? To get me out of Guadalupe. She was racist. Was she a white woman? Oh, yeah. From Oklahoma. And she'd tell me she was raped by her father. And she ran from Oklahoma, California at an early age as well. So she was, I don't even remember how old she was when I went to go live with her. But I couldn't even imagine what the 40s, 50s would have been like. You know what I mean? So in her head, she's actually saving you and protecting you from that life without realizing that she was subverging you to the same. Yeah, that her generational trauma was playing out literally underneath her nose. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. And then when I hit high school, you know, you get to go out with the football star, you know, and have a lot of fun. And oh, my God, I learned. Oh, yeah. I was always getting stoned in the bathroom, ditching. I had bad. I started out really good. But then, you know. How were your grades in high school? They were good for a while. I still have my records. 
<laughs> I should scan it and send it to you via email. Got most of my grades. I made up a lot of my grades when I got pregnant, you know, and you go to one of those continuation schools. I made up. I mean, I even, <laughs> I don't know why I remember this, but for the sewing part or sewing class or whatever, I went in with, I think, great grandma's quilts and stuff that she did and said I did them. <laughs> so you found a way to get around. You were very resourceful. Oh, yeah. Very resourceful. You know, from when I was 13 till I was about maybe 16, 17 I was in and out of juvenile hall, I think, like 13 times. I was running away from home. That's all I did. Run away from home and steal Papa Pardo's car to go see my mom or turn around and steal my mom's car to go to my dad. I was always running back and forth. You know, no one would ever want to take me. So I just steal the car. So during this time when you're literally running away from place to place, no one ever sat you down and said, what is going on? No to give you a like some safety and say it's okay to tell me what's going on like how are you feeling did they ever try to get you checked out or take you to a doctor or anything like that no no teachers either no they would always just say you know she was a bad kid you know she's in the wrong crowd it's the normal things that aren't acceptable today that were acceptable then Mm -hmm. or that's what they pawned it off on or that's she's a lost cause right you know, let's just send her to juvenile hall or let's do this with her or whatever. Did you experience any sexual trauma during that time? Oh, yeah. I've been jumped and gang raped like probably three times. In high school? In high school. One was in Delano. One was in the projects in Guadalupe. And I got jumped. And if it wasn't for one of the guys, I'll never forget that day. If one of the guys had jumped in the middle with these girls and, you know, told them what, you know, you know, to back off or screw off or whatever. And he grabbed me and we ran from the projects through the swamp in Guadalupe and he got me out of there. And of course we had sex. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're like, you saved me. I owe mm-hmm. it you. Mm-hmm. Let me do this for you. Yeah. I yeah. relate to that. Yeah. That's, you know, high school was just always running, being in juvenile hall. When did you meet my father, Frank? Oh, good one. Frank, me, was the only one in Guadalupe that had the car. So all the girls always wanted to hang out with me. And so they said, come on, you know, I'm going to go see my boyfriend in Napoma. And I was like, okay, we'd go after school or we'd ditch school and go to Napoma and I'd drop her off. Then we'd go to the beach. You know, me and the other girls would go to the beach and go cruise around. And Oshana was like, like Guadalupe. You know, back then, the homeboys were outside and there was music and it was fun. And so we were cruising by the little grade school there. We see these two guys and this real, I was looking at the car. Oh my God, that car was just beautiful. It was a 63 Super Sport Impala convertible gold and so i cruised through and i looked and i said "Ooh, those guys are cute i go i like that one (laughs) 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 and then the rest is history well did you make the first move did you say hello what happened i just had to smile and he came to that window 
<laughs> I was only what, like 16 years old. How old was he? He's what? I think two years older than me, I think. Yeah, I think he was 18. And then, so after that meeting, was it just like you started hanging out? And mm-hmm. we were hanging out, you know, we'd go over there to Oceano, me and the girls, you know, drop off one girl here, one girl here, one girl here. So when I was done, then I'd go back and go ping, 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 ping. And then we all go home. And we always got home about 11 o'clock at night on a school night and do it all over again the next day. And she would just let you do that? No, actually, at that point, Lucille had gotten so upset with me from running away all that time, in and out, in and out, that by the time I turned maybe 15, maybe between 15 and 16, she made me go live with my dad. Oh, okay. With Poncho. So that's how I got with him. Oh, and he would let you use his car and he just Mm -hmm. wouldn't put any restrictions. Yeah. How did it feel to get out of that house? Oh, I was crazy. I loved it. I didn't ever want to come back home. (laughs) Yeah, of course. You know, it was just like letting a wild animal out of the cage for the first time. Right. I didn't know how to adapt. I didn't know what to do. I just knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And it was to cruise around and party and have sex. Right. That's all I wanted to do. Because nobody told you about like, you know, condoms or birth control or... No, it wasn't a big thing. Teen pregnancy was big. It started to grow after. It was common, but not as common as it just one day exploded, you know, where everyone was like teen pregnancy and doing something about it. Now, no one wants to have sex. You know, everyone's on birth control. Really? Yeah, because they're all androgynous. And I think that millennials have more stress on them than any other generation and that they're just having less sex. I wonder if it's also fear of like social media exposure. Yeah, we didn't have it. We had MySpace. So how old were you when you got pregnant? 17. And what was your reaction? Well, I went to the doctor for a normal routine and I didn't know. And the doctor told me I was pregnant. And I told Frank, and Frank told me that I need to get an abortion. And I said, okay, so I was going to get one. However, the phone rang, and I'm 17 years old, and my dad answered. Well, it was the doctor. To tell my dad, your daughter's pregnant. Because I wasn't going to tell Papa Pardo. I was just going to go off and, you know, go have an abortion and, you know, keep it all cool under the radar and then once he knew i was just like well pregnant and then that was that did he say something to you or what did he just like look at you or oh he gave me that look you don't want the papa pardo look he didn't give it often but when he did oh and he never raised a hand to me he spanked me with the belt one time and he didn't spank me it just came off (laughs) and went back on as fast as it came off and it shocked me, like, oh, my God, my daddy, like, what was that? You know, like, he got my attention. I don't remember what I did, but I remember the belt coming off and pop, pop. So after you decided to keep me, what was going through your mind? What was the conversation that you had with Frank? What was that like? Frank, he was happy. I thought, you know, I thought maybe he would be more happier. But all he wanted to do was... Get stoned, cruise, and go out with other women, basically. We ended up living together for a little bit, but he just wanted to do his own thing. You know, I did the whole Section 8 
and $35 was my rent, $34. And guess what? I couldn't afford it. Why I couldn't afford it? I have no idea. Welfare, I think you got like $450. How could I not afford $35? I have no idea. Anybody teaching you how to handle finances? No, because I was only 18 years old. Out on my own. I moved to Oshano so I could be closer to Frank. And it didn't work out because I spent most of my time cruising the streets to find him with somebody else. And so, you know. You had already had Christina. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in between Christina and Brittany, I had gotten pregnant again. And I didn't know I was pregnant. I was bleeding, thinking it was normal. But I kept bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And then all of a sudden, it was like gushing. And I had passed out. And when I finally woke up, they had taken me to the hospital because I had bled out like everywhere. And they hurry up and they took me to the hospital because I was having a miscarriage. And I had no idea that I was even pregnant. Then I think a few months after that, I had gotten pregnant with Brittany. Oh, and when you got pregnant with Brittany, what was the thoughts with that? I was going to have an abortion because Frank didn't want another kid. And so I told him to go screw himself, you know, and that was that. And then came along Brittany. How old was I? Probably 19. Because you guys are 14 months apart, I think. It's either 14 or 16, yeah. Boy, something like that. And there was one in between. Oh, mm. Very hard. You had some real speed there. <laughs> <laughs> real fertilization. Real fertile. <laughs> Real fertile, yes. you have Real fertile. You know, the Franks family wasn't very nice. You know, they're close-knit, and they didn't want anybody else to be part of the family. It was like, oh, you know, you get rejected from them. And then I didn't talk to Frank. After Brittany was born, I think I talked to Frank, I would say maybe five times, maybe six, in like, I don't know, 20 years maybe, maybe longer. Because I never knew how to get a hold of him because the lady that he was married to or dating, what was her name, Cindy? Yeah. She was jealous of me. She wouldn't allow Frank to communicate with me. Nothing. The isolation that she put him through or he allowed. I shouldn't say, you know, because he, he could have said no. But the good thing is that me and Frank reconciled before he passed away. Probably what, like a month or two, I think, before he passed away. And he told me how sorry he was. He cooked me dinner and we sat and we talked. And I told him how much I had hated him. And I was able to have forgiveness and to be able to yell and scream. I don't think I yelled or screamed. I was just agitated or irritated at, you know, the whole thing. Because he had a choice. You know, you're a grown adult. You have a choice in the decision. All right, guys. So that was the end of part one, this series on generational trauma. If you and your parents or siblings would like an opportunity to come onto our podcast and to share your story about how trauma has been imprinted in your bloodline, and you have a story that testimony that you think would benefit others, please email us at become.activated at gmail.com because we would love to hear your story. 
And even more so, if you have something that you have been holding inside that is causing you shame and is making you feel unworthy of love, and you would like an opportunity to come on and tell your story to let that shit go, we would love to have you on here. Absolutely. The beginning of part two, you're going to hear when Carol Ann has Christina, and then it's going to go into the story of what happened between them. So part two is really incredible with a lot of beautiful healing at the end. So we hope to see you guys back here next week. Yes, it'll be fun. Yes, a lot of incredible healing at the end of that one. Part two is even crazier than part one. And then after we go, after Carol Ann, my biological mother's story, we'll be going into my story. So you get to hear a little bit up close and personal about my life and then my transformation, my activation that happened after I saw the patterns and what to do and how to integrate. Oh yeah. And you're going to want to hear that. There's some (laughs) solid gold on there and she's telling her story for the first time. So it's going to be pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, until next week, sayonara, stay curious.